Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck. On today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Brad Muhort, and Brad is the author of The Peaceful Man, a book aimed at helping men heal from violence and find peace within themselves to create a more compassionate world. Brad's received extensive training and holds certifications in various practices, including developmental coaching, somatic practices, group facilitation, and transformative change. And you use a combination of these modalities and your own personal experiences to educate and support other men on their healing journeys, which is really great. So welcome to the show, Brad. Thank you, Nikki. And thank you for that introduction. For sure. This is an interesting topic. And I think that um, I would say most, if not all of society is aware, but it's not often spoken about in this context. So could you start by sharing a little about how you began your own healing journey and why this topic in particular was important to you? So growing up, I, through my adolescence, I experienced quite a lot of bullying myself. And in a sense, one path towards lessening the amount of bullying that I was experiencing was to actually learn to be violent and to become violent myself. And for a long time, this just seemed to be the way it was that, oh, you know, boys will be boys and we're violent with each other. And that was certainly the perspective that I had as I entered adulthood. And I think in many ways, that is what is the perspective of our culture and our society on male on male violence, that boys are going to be violent with boys. And Not only is violence acceptable, but it's actually even glorified. We have our war heroes and our superheroes and even the good guy superheroes. They're superheroes because they are being violent and okay, they're being violent with the bad guys, but nonetheless, they're heroes because of their capacity for violence and the way that they are violent. And as I moved further into adulthood, it became more and more clear to me how much I was actually affected by this violence. I will say that, you know, I, it's, it's not like I was ever involved with a gang or I've never been in a war zone. In some sense, the violence that I was involved with was relatively commonplace, relatively mild. And yet I would still say that I was very impacted by the trauma of the violence that I experienced and actually also that I committed. I think being violent with another person is also very traumatizing. And I spent a lot of, you know, put a lot of effort. I have put a lot of effort into my own healing process. And I guess above all, to answer your question is I've started to, I started to see that It it doesn't have to be this way. Yes, certainly as human beings, we have a capacity to be violent, to be violent, But equally, we have the capacity to be other ways. And I don't think all of this violence is necessary. I don't think that it's a necessity or inevitable that boys being violent with each other has to be more or less a rite of passage as we go through childhood and adolescence. It's a really great setup for the conversation. And thank you for sharing your own experiences in that because i think that whole concept of boys will be boys right it's something that i mean it's a phrase for a reason right like it's it it is very commonplace as you said it makes me wonder when you're working with people on this topic do you find that people are a little bit dismissive of the broader impact of male-on-male violence because of that notion that boys will be boys and maybe not even just people that you work with as clients but when you're having conversations with people about this is it still do you think more widely 
this notion that what are you going to do about it because this is the way that it is? Or do you feel like there's a shift starting to happen in that way? I think there is a shift starting to happen. I think it has a long ways to go. I think that attitude of being dismissive of it or just seeing it as inevitable and also seeing it as not that big a deal. Mm. Of course, boys are, they're rough with each other. You know, it's just, it's just not that big a deal. I don't think, I think that's actually the most common perception of it. And I think even men who have experienced violence as a child or even in their adulthood are often dismissive of the impact that it has had upon them. I certainly was myself for many years. I mean, it's really a journey of self-discovery at the core is, you know, why am I like this? Why do I behave this way? What is it that makes me feel like I should behave this way? Was there a specific moment that you recall or maybe a culmination of moments that led you down this path? I think it was quite a spiral of realizing how it impacted me, how deeply it impacted me. I would say working with a psychotherapist for a totally, totally different reason was what actually kind of perhaps opened my eyes to these, my stories about involvement with violence for the first time and went, oh, yeah, I guess that did impact me. Yeah, I've had a few of those moments in therapy too, where you're just like, oh, yeah, as I'm saying it out loud, it sort of seems like that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. And then there's been a couple of instances of, you know, not severe violence, but let's say, and touches with violence in my adulthood that brought up a lot of the trauma from when I was an adolescent. And those were actually, I would say, the moments that it most hit home when all of this, what I would say in many ways was held in my body, just, you know, flared up. And I was like, oh, I'm not even just responding to what just happened. This just created the space for all of this trauma, all of these tensions, all of these things from when I was much younger to resurface. And while certainly, you know, these were not things that I would choose to go through again, I actually can see the grace in them to actually have had the opportunity to see more clearly the impacts of what happened to me when I was younger, what I did when I was younger. Yeah, that's such a beautiful perspective too, Brad, in terms of being able to say, you know, you wouldn't choose to go through it again, but you can see the grace in it. I feel that myself related to my own deeper traumas. And it's something that I think as you are evolving emotionally and honestly, the more educated you become on your own experience, but also the modalities of healing and processing trauma, it gives you a lot of freedom to be able to look at your own circumstance a bit more objectively and to be able to step back and ask yourself, what is it about these circumstances that I haven't healed from or that I am holding on to? And something that you mentioned and I think is important to talk about a little bit is that physical component of actually holding on to the trauma, having that embedded in yourself, because I feel that particularly related to the topic that that we're discussing with male on male violence, it's, I mean, it's multifold, but um, two parts of that are the psychological impact of violence in general. But then there's also that expectation from society that, you know, men aren't going to express those feelings. They're not going to acknowledge the things that have hurt them or acknowledge experiences that are lingering and maybe feel unresolved. So, When you consider that, what is the best way to sort of untangle that to be able to have a productive healing journey? I think the very first step is simply to bring awareness to, might say, the issue of violence that really bullying violence on all levels is problematic and that it's a cycle you know there's look at it there's no isolated incident of violence in a sense i believe who is most likely to perpetrate violence someone who has been a victim of violence i think it's very difficult to find people who are just perpetrating violence in a void where it doesn't come from somewhere from their own victimization. When someone has experienced 
their own, their body being disrespected, their boundaries being violated, it's much easier for that person to turn around and not respect someone else's body to, to violate someone else's boundaries. That's a really compelling statement. I want you to finish what you're saying, but I feel like it's really important to acknowledge that sense of your body being disrespected and your boundaries being crossed because it's something that I feel a lot of people are really coming to terms with more now and yeah. trying to understand their own boundaries. So please go on. But I just, I that felt like an important thing to call out because it is so important to be able to make that distinction about what it is that you're feeling in those moments. Right. Absolutely, Nikki. So the, these cycles of violence, I think this is what, what needs to be brought to awareness of really of everybody, but in particular into the awareness of people who have experienced violence, been involved with violence and seeing these cycles, what they've gone through and becoming aware of their stories of involvement with violence perpetrating violence, being a victim of violence, seeing those as not being just normal or inevitable or not significant and seeing how they have been impacted, how they are impacted potentially to this day. You know, the, there's so many different ways that this trauma, I think, can live in us and come through and affect our happiness and relationships and you know all aspects of being the lens through which we see the world definitely so i think simply bringing light to what is very much held in in the shadows in regards to the violence we've experienced and violence in general is the first step a necessary first step before we get into really like healing through the body and through other practices we have to just simply be aware of what happened and how we were affected and that we were affected. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I'm curious about from your own experiences, because when we first spoke, you know, you were saying you weren't involved in gangs. You grew up in a, a relatively safe place. As you pointed yep. out, you are a white male. So you have um, that yep. going for you in terms of societal expectations and acceptance. Um, yep. So when you think back to your own experiences, and you had mentioned being bullied, and I totally understand that. I was bullied growing up for a bit. And mm -hmm. I remember this is such like a minute thing in the grand scheme of what violence is, but even just bullying. I, when I was in sixth grade, this kid said something to me, it was like, you live in a box. And I took offense to it and I called him a shithead and I got in trouble for it. But it was like my response was retaliate. It wasn't, he's obviously saying something that is factually inaccurate and I don't need to respond. And granted, I think being, you know, in your early um, to preteen years, you're not being rational, but I think it's indicative of that, that defense mode and really projecting that anger back at somebody. And whether that's the person who has elicited that response or it's being projected, we take that on, we internalize it, and then we at some point end up expressing it most likely in a oh. physical manner. And so whether that's, you know, we go to the gym and we go hit a punching bag or we end up getting in a fight with somebody and we're throwing punches, it's important to acknowledge like what that reactivity is really stemming from. And having had issues with anger myself, I've never gotten in a fist fight, but a big part of that is because I don't, I've said to my closest friends, I don't know that I trust myself to be in a fight with somebody because I won't hit someone. So my concern would be if I've gotten to the point where I'm going to hit you, what would I do? And that scares me. And so it's sort of like as best as possible to avoid any sort of physical confrontation. But having been bullied, do you feel like that led to you being in sort of that defense mode and then that manifesting as a physical like act of violence? Or do you feel like the trigger for any sort of violent behavior that you had was separate of the bullying experience itself? So I think there's a lot of different ways that can kind of evolve for me personally the i was being bullied by a group of boys and in a sense it wasn't a perfect or complete solution that ended all bullying but what actually changed things so that i was being bullied much less was that i fought back against one of them i grabbed one of them and you know all of these boys were much bigger than me so i basically grabbed the one who was 
only somewhat bigger than me and just kept punching him. And then I was a little bit less of an easy mark, we might mm -hmm. say. Yeah. And that was kind of the, the start of my own being violent. And again, it's not like I'm talking about being violent in any kind of extreme ways, but there were then times that I was bullied, but I knew that I had no chance of basically fighting back against this bully. But then there was something held in me and anger and, you know, that came out on someone else or someone then antagonizes me a little bit who's actually, you know, weak in comparison to me. And I respond to that person physically in a way that was totally inappropriate. So this actually, in you know, what I'm saying, I see very much going back to the cycles of violence and how mm. there's no isolated incidents in some sense and the importance of of each man each person who has experienced violence or perpetrated violence to do the healing work you know even there as an adult to not to not react to their child or react to someone else in a way that has any violence in it to do the healing work to actually become able to be a peaceful man and propagate that in the world rather than unconsciously unknowingly propagating cycles of violence the concept of those cycles of violence as well is fairly interlinked, I would assume, with the concept of generational trauma as well. And it speaks Absolutely. to what you were saying earlier around, you know, a lot of times, I mean, more often than not, I think psychologically, it makes complete sense that if somebody has been a victim of violence, then they're more apt to respond with that. And I think when you consider, generationally speaking, my dad is in the boomer generation and he's somebody who he has what i would say a long fuse that burns real quick and that was the way that my anger mm. would manifest where it's like it builds up it builds up it builds up and then boom like you're mad now and there's no coming back from that right and so it's a lot of emotional regulation that's required to be able to manage that and diffuse it and i remember this one time where i'd been getting gaslit by my ex for a very long time and it was like something that was seemingly small in the moment, but I just like off the rails completely. And I remember the next day going into therapy and being like, I don't want this to be how I respond because even though it's not physical violence, it was verbal and I was aggressive and it was so uncharacteristic of who I am as a person. It was like an out of body experience. I remember my therapist saying to me, it sounds like you just wanted to watch something burn. And I was like, yeah, that tracks. Like I had just really met my limit and I didn't know how else to respond mm -hmm. because I don't think I've ever reached that threshold of anger. And I also think that while my parents raised me well and they were not violent people, there is this sense of anger can beget that response, whether it manifests physically or verbally. And when you get to sort of that point of no return, if you don't have conscious control of that yourself or you've never seen that modeled it makes it a lot more difficult to have that objectivity and that awareness that you're talking about absolutely i think right now we're at a really interesting point in society where our generations are doing the work to break the cycles you know trying to be more emotionally aware trying to evolve more emotionally so then we aren't stuck in these patterns, both psychologically and physically in this regard. I see sort of Gen Z in a lot of ways really coming forward and having this empathy and this compassion that I think generations before us, I don't want to say that they lacked the compassion, but I think they maybe didn't have such a great understanding of the importance of that compassion. Yeah. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And I think that in some ways, the capacity of the younger generations to do exactly what you're describing does actually derive from some of the healing work that previous generations have done, albeit, you know, not to the same depth, but, you know, each person in each generation is doing the work that it's in, in their capacity and For that sure. society supports them doing. And I love just that you just said, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I love that you just said 
and what society supports them doing because I think that's a really important point to make because I think about you know my dad expresses his emotions more than his father who lived through the depression did and I'm certain that he expressed his emotions more than his father who was born in the like late 1800s or early 1900s did right so progressively that just from a societal expectation makes a lot more sense and where i was going with my own example very similar to what you're describing my my dad experienced horrible horrendous violence as a child and as he grew up in a sense that was the water he swam in and i would say not zero but the amount of violence that i experienced from my father was like such a minuscule percentage of what he experienced himself. So I would say that it's actually quite extraordinary how much he overcame his own upbringing to be a a very gentle, supportive father. And, you know, imperfect in that regard, but actually very extraordinary. I have a lot of gratitude to him. He wouldn't even have looked at it as being his, you know, healing work, but kind of like my own perspective on it is, yeah, he did some, he really broke some cycles there and did some really deep healing, even if he never would have even imagined it that way. I would say, yes, I'm kind of going a level deeper in my healing work and wanting to spread that and enable more boys and more men to do more healing work. And, you know, I'm able to do this because of the work done by my dad and others in his generation to create even a little bit less violent world than it was for them. All of a long ways to go. That is for sure. I mean, we can just look at the state of the world as an example of that. It's interesting because you shed light on something at the beginning of the conversation in it being so commonplace. It's everywhere. It's violence in movies. It's violence in television shows, reality, quote unquote, TV, you know, actual reality that we're living in, the division that we see among people in the United States. Globally, there's a massive amount of just collective sort of revolution happening right now. I'm so impressed by the people who are coming from a place across all genders, but coming from a place of wanting to treat people with compassion and a sense of humanity that it feels sometimes like we've lost track of and really making the point that we are all human beings and that we have to allow each other to take up space and to find ways to resolve conflict that aren't rooted in violence. If the goal of a war is to solve a problem, I don't see how any war solves a problem. I think you get involved in a conflict to try to reduce the threat of a problem, but you, if you're fighting to fight, that's what the result is. People will be hurt at the end of all of that. What's actually been achieved? Somebody has more power somebody has more money, but is there actually a resolution? That's the massive impact of this type of violence. And the people at the helm of this global violence are men. And I think I said this to you when we had our first call was like, I just sort of look at these people who believe really the lies that they tell themselves about how great they are, but also just that they feel they have the authority to invoke so much violence on other people. I look at that and I'm kind of like, what happened to you? What is it that makes you so insecure that this is the way that you feel you have to show up in the world to prove something about yourself? It's just like the greatest show of insecurity, even though they have these massive tactics. Absolutely. I want to start in response to that with what you were saying about seeing the humanity in everyone and in the way that violence among men is at least acceptable and even glorified and how we see men as heroes is to be violent. I think in many ways that is actually discounting men's humanity and the way that they are really impacted by violence that men, you know, were in some kind of stereotype of masculinity supposed to be impenetrable and solid and all of these things. But 
men have, you know, soft, vulnerable bodies and, you know, feel pain and feel fear and anxiety and anger. And despite these stereotypes and these expectations of, you know, heroes, especially in the ideal of masculinity, men are humans. And I think in many ways in, you know, going back to that boys will be boys and the glorification of violence, the humanity of men is actually being ignored. Yeah. And then what you, I'm going to use the specific example of what's going on in, in Ukraine and Putin starting a war there and the crazy over the top violence that's happening against Ukrainians, soldiers and civilians. And, you know, the scale of violence there, it in some ways seems totally disconnected from, you know, a bully on the playground, a, a fight in, in the schoolyard. They're totally different scales. And while acknowledging that, I actually think there's a great deal similar in the process that's happening there. I think, I think in the one... juvenile nature of being unable to communicate effectively. Yes, I think that's a good way of putting it. I might also think about it in terms of, I think a lot of violence comes from having intense sensation in the body that someone doesn't know how else to deal with, except to, in a sense, blow that sensation out by being violent with someone else. I've literally had this conversation in therapy where... I've expressed when I was working through this deep rage that I was feeling that it was really like blowing a gasket. It felt like the pressure built up so much that mm -hmm. the only thing to do was to lash out. I need to get this energy out. I need to put mm -hmm. it somewhere. I can't hold on to it anymore. But if I don't direct it in the right place, then it's going to come out at somebody else or it could come out at myself, right? Because right. the other thing is you can internalize, but you can also explode at yourself too. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, and take someone who has, let's say, put together, experienced very severe trauma and doesn't have the self-awareness and internal resources such as you described, what happens? There, There's nowhere for that sensation. There's no outlet for that except to blow that out on, on another person. And in some sense, that's what I imagine is happening in Ukraine. It's just that, you know, Putin has such, you know, so much power and it's not punching someone, you know, he has bombs and troops and there's some threat, something that he doesn't have another way to, to express or to deal with, except mm. to, to unleash his trauma onto an entire country. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating too, because I mean, you can look at World War II and say the same thing about Hitler, right? It's, right. it's such a fascinating psychological and sociological example when you mm -hmm. consider to your point, the scale of it. And it's interesting too, because I was looking up some stats before we talked, because I was kind of like, you know, I'm really curious, what are the numbers around this? And I mean, mm. I, one of the studies from the United Nations Office of Drug and Crimes, Drugs and Crime, said about 90% of all homicides, and this is just homicides, this isn't all violent crime, 90% of all homicides recorded worldwide were committed by male perpetrators, which is, yeah. I want to say not surprising and at the same time shocking. And I mean that in the sense of, first of all, 90% is, there's clearly something both sociologically and I imagine psych psychologically embedded in our human race that mm -hmm. facilitates that, that right. we have become used to the fact that the expectation is almost like a serial killer will likely be a male, right. a rapist will likely be a male, but that likely. doesn't mean that the violence that is being invoked is solely directed towards women either. And right. I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, obviously a lot of it is directed towards mm -hmm. women. That Absolutely. is a lot of times the psychological battle that men are facing and feelings of inadequacy that we see. And that ultimately comes down to a very base need, which is that we want connection and we want belonging. But the other part of it is 
men who are violent towards other men, whether that is a father being violent towards their child, or that is somebody that, you know, get into a bar fight with, or somebody just has an act of rage and that leads to a death. These are things that if people aren't taught to cope with that and to acknowledge that as an unacceptable behavior, an inappropriate response, I think you said that earlier, then of course they're going to perpetuate it because they're not in a space of understanding themselves enough to be able to assess that there's a solution to the problem because they don't necessarily see it as a problem, especially if it's not a recurrence. It's something that happens and then, okay, well, you know, it happened. It is what it is. I got into this fight and, you know, we squashed it. Guys will be guys, right? They'll just punch each other and then they'll get over it. But did they get over it or did they just punch each other and stop punching each other eventually? Right. Right. What's stopping from doing it again? And is that fight still happening in them? Is there, are they still feeling those impulses even more so than they were before when they go grocery shopping and pick their kid up at school or do whatever, you know, those, that trauma could still be living in them. That's a really interesting perspective, Brad. I think when I consider violence in general, I'm thinking of it as, you know, these are moments in time. And yes, there's definitely, there can be that undercurrent. I've felt it myself when I'm having high anxiety or I'm stressed about something, right? Like there can be, you know, simultaneously you're going through your day-to-day activities, but there's this lingering sensation or feeling that you have that something is off. To get back to what you said, it's like that somatic thing where it's in your body, you know that it's there, but you Mm -hmm. maybe can't name it and you can't understand it enough to be able to address it until it comes out and you are able to really turn the mirror back on yourself and ask the why that you're going to continue to go through cycles of that. And maybe the time in between will be longer because you are becoming more aware that, hey, you know, I don't want to respond this way and I need to change the way I behave. But it is such an evolution of who we are as people to get to that. It's not just you flip a switch and all of a sudden you've decided this is how you're going to react. You're going to be more emotionally mature. You're going to actually have to really give yourself the space and the time to unpack how you've gotten to a place where this is your response. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think another way of thinking about that is in a situation with violence, our, you know, fight or flight response that goes on, we feel that very strongly. And it might seem like, okay, I walked away from that. And, you know, it's gone down, but has it really gone down to a baseline of zero, which it appropriately should be most of the time? Or is it sitting, you know, at 20%? Uh, perpetually, nonstop. You don't even realize that you're slightly triggered all the time. Exactly. And then I think it can be even worse. You know, maybe there's enough trauma that actually it's sitting at 80% all the time, that fight or flight, you're on edge. You're ready to, for something to be coming at you to have to react to Mm -hmm. violence in a violent way at any moment. And I think I'm peaceful because, you know, I'm not at 100%, but, oh, I'm actually at 80%. And I'm using higher numbers, I think, than it's ever really been for myself. But, you know, I see that in, in other people. And I certainly have had, had experiences of myself, those, you know, touches with violence in my adult life. That's what, that's one of the things that those have brought to my attention. Like, oh, okay. I had a moment there when I, where I went up to hundred percent and that actually just gave me a different orientation realizing then after the fact that i don't even have a zero like i i have never been at the zero and you know for me it was probably more like you know 10 20 percent or something mm-hmm. like that to use a scale like that but that is even that is significant to be just perpetually in that fight or flight that readiness for violence without even knowing it because you've just become used to that because of the anxiety that is associated with those feelings and recognizing that the physical accompaniment of that stress is part of what needs to be healed. If we start living with it and we normalize that, then you're like, this is just what I feel like, right? But it doesn't have to be what you feel like. And I think the important thing is to 
really come to a place within yourself where you can acknowledge that. And for me, I wouldn't have gotten there had I not a been doing therapy, but also been doing some work for myself to really look inward and say, I don't like how I'm showing up in the world. I don't like the behavior that I'm exhibiting. Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to find better ways to, first of all, treat myself and also treat other people. And when you get some clarity on really the science behind it and the fact that your body is legitimately holding onto it, your nervous system mm -hmm. is dysregulated, then you have so much more opportunity to fine tune the things that will help you get out of that fight or flight. Absolutely. And there are, there are many ways of doing that. It is very possible to heal this, you know, to, to deeper and deeper layers. And that's not to say that it's, uh, it's not sometimes challenging and, you know, and quite an emotional process to, to do that work. It's certainly not to make light of the ease of the process and the potential difficulty of it. Oh no, it's terribly hard. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it really is possible. And I would say extremely worthwhile on a personal level and so needed on a societal level. I love that you just said both of those things. I know I mentioned at the beginning, like that you do a bit related to somatic practice and things like that. Would you be able to share a little bit more about that? Because I feel like that's something that unless you are either actively in therapy or extremely interested in psychology, you're probably not hearing a lot about somatic practices a little bit more maybe now than before because of social media. But I think in general, it would be something that maybe listeners could benefit from if they've never heard of it. For sure. As a starting point, when we experience a trauma, there's some kind, we've talked about how that kind of can remain in your body. You know, some people just kind of talk about it as being something energetic. And, you know, I, that, that works in a sense, if that's how you want to think about it. I tend to think about it from a more physiological, anatomical perspective, and think of it in terms of the patterns that are in a sense, get get grooved into our nervous system and our muscles and our posture and the ways that we hold ourselves. We create habits in our bodies, in the way that we perceive, in the ways that we respond, in the ways that we move, in the ways that we stay still, in the ways that we breathe, in our facial expressions. We all have patterns and habits of the way that we do these things. And necessity, we need to have habits because we don't want to be thinking about what we're <laughs> going, you know, how we're going to make every smile, etc. We need to have patterns and habits that are ingrained but when we experience trauma, when there is a particularly intense incident, that can be very influential in creating habits, creating patterns that we don't realize we're living and that we're continuing to live. In those kind of intense states, very deep grooves can get laid down very quickly, such that we keep having those habits from the traumatic incident. One example could be when we're afraid, our breathing tends to become very shallow and our breathing might continue to be very shallow such that we don't even notice that anymore. That's just the way that we breathe, but that has an emotional impact. It has a physiological impact that we might just keep doing to a greater or lesser degree for years. There's different ways of coming at healing traumas, sometimes in becoming aware of, you know, the, a, a story that, of violence that we were involved with and sharing that with someone, we get some relief and that actually changes the pattern in the body. That's one, that's kind of the, at least in classic, kind of a classical approach to psychotherapy. That's exactly how it works. Another way into healing though, is to actually work with the patterns in the body to become aware of what are, what physical patterns, what are we doing in the body and to 
choose to let go of those habits and to bring in new habits. Like we were talking about the emotional process can be difficult. That's usually not an easy process to become aware of these habits because they are the water that we swim in. So it often takes working with someone else on them to really become aware. But on the other hand, there are lots of practices that we can do on our own as well to become more aware of our bodies and the sensations in them, how we move, how we breathe, and to experiment with different patterns. I really love how you explained it as patterns and habits that we hold in our body. I hadn't really considered it as sort of a habit of your nervous system. And I like that concept because there's something to be said for how your body gets used to it. And I remember while I was going through a lot of healing, dealing with psychological and ultimately physical abuse with my ex, it was one of those things where I could go into therapy and I could talk about it and I could talk about it very, very objectively. And mm -hmm. I would have said that I was working through it. It's not to say I wasn't because I was acknowledging what was happening. And that's the thing is I think one of the hardest things to do when you're committing to, to your own healing journey and to therapy in particular is getting the words out and letting it exist in the world outside of you. But when you get to a place where you actually have done enough of the work and have the awareness to maybe a little bit, it's predictive, almost like you feel your body starting to respond in a way and you can catch it a little bit. For me, that's a feeling of progress being like, Ooh, this is coming and I don't like that. Or I'm feeling really dysregulated right now. And I have, I have a hammock under my desk because the desk I have had the option to get one because it's a standing desk. And so when I'm feeling really stressed out and anxious, like I will go chill in my hammock and swing back and forth to regulate myself because I can feel it in my body. I don't want to go for like a run. I, I don't need to like get a physical anger out, but I need to feel comforted and I need to have that ability to find sort of that peaceful sensation, but it's not just, you know, it's not like the mind over matter piece of it. It's literally my body needs to feel soothed. And this is what right. I can do right now to soothe that. But when you don't have the tools or you don't have the knowledge for whatever reason, whether you haven't explored that or you don't want to explore that, it does have an impact on your ability to effectively manage your emotions. And when you can't do that, then you are going to be more prone to having outbursts, whether those are emotional or physical mm -hmm. or both. And Absolutely. I think that's that convergence of that awareness coupled with untangling the societal expectations that is really where your perspective and the book that you've written are highlighting the need to address that and to give people the opportunity to look within themselves, really question the why behind the behaviors that we have and reflect on that with a sense of empathy for ourselves and for each other instead of shame. As a female expressing my emotions. I've certainly been told that I'm emotional in life, but you know, it's never been sort of dismissed in the way that I think men feel that or felt like I couldn't express myself regardless of what a response would be in being able to acknowledge within yourself and also help other people get to this place of self-awareness and ultimately finding that inner peace. What would you recommend to somebody who wants to embark on this journey of healing and help themselves, but maybe doesn't know where to begin or feels insecure, possibly disempowered to actually go down that path? I want to say, first of all, just that the conventional definitions of masculinity and that we're supposed to be impenetrable and solid and, you know, in control. And this is something that I see as being so important to change for reasons that I'm not even going to get into right now, but least of all, just for being able to engage in this healing process, it needs to happen societally. But the way we get there societally is for that to happen one man at a time to be willing to open up and to shift from seeing being 
unexpressive and out of touch with emotions as being the masculine strong thing to do to actually seeing vulnerability and expression and being in those processes as being what is actually even stronger and more masculine than negating those than denying those that is one thing that i really i think is so important and would you know really hope to see more of more men becoming seeing themselves seeing that as being masculine and strong i love that you said that brad because i've been very lucky with guests that i've spoken to in the last couple of months to have had a lot of interest from men in particular wanting to share their journeys through their healing mental health, really establishing that sense of self separate of the societal expectations. So I'm optimistic. Great, great. And then to answer your question more specifically about recommendations and your wondering about working with someone or doing it on their own, I'm going to say it, it, it's going to be different for different people. There may be some people who actually have a fairly easy process and can get through something totally on, on their own, whether they're willing to work with someone or not. And for others, it's going to be a lot more of a process. And for such people, at least ultimately, it's probably going to be necessary to work with someone. I'm going to say, you know, if someone is reluctant to to work with anyone, to express anyone directly, I would say my book is a great place to start. I recommend practices in there. There's questions to explore in there. Someone could certainly at least get through opening layers and to become more aware of things and perhaps reach the point where they were ready to actually engage with working with someone or even if not you know maybe they'll get enough from that or maybe that's as far as they're willing to go i think healing for anyone who's had any significant amount of trauma there's no end to healing there's you know which is both to say that that you can do any amount of it and any amount of it that you do is beneficial but you're also not going to reach a point ever, I don't think, where you're like, okay, I'm totally done with it. I'm never going to be affected by this again. I've actually arrogantly thought that myself before <laughs> and then been rudely awakened at some point in the not too distant future from that point that, oh, yeah, haha, no. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I feel the exact same way. And it's funny because my friend who was the person who really, through her own journey, inspired me, had told me that her sister recently started going to therapy and and it was going really well for her and she was starting to unpack a lot though. So she's realizing that this is more of a lengthy journey. And I was like, oh, welcome to the rest of your life. Because once you go on that journey to become really the best version of yourself, the version of yourself mm -hmm. that you want to be, you do become a little bit, I think, insatiable in a way because you understand the benefits and it, it does feel good to heal. Now mm -hmm. you've got to go through some real moments to get there. But right. I do think that there's something really powerful about the acknowledgement that it is a lifelong journey and it doesn't mean that you can't be okay. It just right. means that you're still actively embracing the fact that, you know, we as human beings are imperfect and our lives and our experiences mm -hmm. really do drive who we become and, and you have to make an active choice as an individual to keep yourself in a healthy mental and physical state. It's the same thing if you just said, you know, whatever, I'm just never going to work out again. And that's fine. But go for a walk, do something else, give yourself little bits of that so you can create more of those habits, as you said, to help align with where you want to go, because there is a lot of light at the end of the tunnel, even right. if, you know, you feel like the tunnel keeps getting longer as you're going towards the end of it. Yeah. And, you know, and I will also say that's not necessary. You know, if there's just something I want to deal with, yeah, sure. Do that healing work. If that's as far as you're going to go, great, please do that. And then you'll go deeper. You won't as seems appropriate to you at that point, but it's not like taking the first step into doing healing work is a lifetime commitment either. You just take the first step and, and that's all you need to do right now. And yeah. maybe that's all you ever need to do. 
I appreciate you saying that because I do feel like I could have made that seem very daunting to people. Um, and while it can be, I agree with you. And I think, you know, even just really considering how this conversation started and where we've ended up here, I love the perspective you've been able to share and the light you've been able to shed on the topic of violence in general, you know, at a societal level, but especially the importance of really all genders acknowledging the very embedded perception of masculinity and violence as it's associated with that. And I really encourage anybody listening to think about not only your own behaviors or the way that people are around you, but to consider, you know, what kind of content are you consuming? What are the things that you are putting into your brain and your body that might be maybe less helpful and more traumatic if you have unhealed parts of yourself. Because I know when I was dealing with a lot, like I was consuming more negative content and it's easy to think, okay, whatever, who cares? It's just a Netflix true crime documentary. Everybody wants to watch it, you know, but it's sort of feeding that, that need or that expectation for us. And part of what we can control is what we consume and really being intentional about educating yourself on the things that you care about and the opportunity that you have to grow, I feel is a very good way to spend your time. Absolutely. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of Who the Fuck. If you enjoyed our conversation and want to learn more about healing from violence and how to find peace within yourself, you can purchase Brad's book, The Peaceful Man on Amazon, and I'll share that link in the show notes. And Brad also offers individual online sessions and men's groups to help those looking to heal. So you can check that out at Brad's website, peacefulmanbook.com. Thanks so much, Brad, for joining me today. I had a really great time chatting with you. Thank you, Nikki. It was a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a beautiful different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA.